Welcome to Immigration Nerds. This podcast is for everyone seeking the details, context, and facts behind the banner headlines on immigration. It's the podcast that gives you the latest on immigration policy and politics and the real world impacts on the people and businesses that make our world turn. If you believe immigration makes us all better, then this is the podcast for you. Brought to you by the nerds at Erickson Immigration Group, guiding clients and their employees through the complex immigration system for over 20 years. Hello, immigration nerds. I'm Lauren Clark, senior attorney at Erickson Immigration Group. I am a fellow nerd, an immigrant, and host of this amazing podcast. On every episode, we're joined by the smartest nerds in the know as we cover trends in business, culture, technology, and politics at the intersection of global immigration. Today, we are focusing on climate migration. With over 200 million individuals expected to be displaced by 2050 due to the climate crisis, we are joined today by two experts who will help us all appreciate the growing connection between climate change's effects and its impact on migration. Coming up in a few minutes, Dan Rostrepo and Aaron Sikorsky with the Climate Immigration Council will join us live from Mexico City and Dubai. But first, for many of you nerds listening out there, there are many reasons to be focused on the environment, both our impact upon it and its impact upon our quality of life. Here at Ericsson Immigration Group, Hiba Anver is one of our incredible partners and leaders of the firm. Additionally, this is a topic that she is passionate about. Hiba, thank you for joining me for this special episode of Immigration Nerds. Thank you so much for having me, Lauren. And you're absolutely right. I am super passionate about all of the issues that we're actually going to be talking about today. Can you tell us a little bit about why this was such an important conversation for you? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So my interest and then uh, resulting passion came because I am actually of Pakistani origin. Both of my parents are Pakistani, and for folks who actually follow either climate-related news or international news, Pakistan is a country that is plagued by several different kinds of climate-fueled issues, whether it's melting glaciers or catastrophic flooding as a result of record-breaking rainfall, whether it's unbearable heat that's making many regions of the country unlivable, pollution in major cities. And so for that reason, it's particularly personal to me. But what really took my interest and my passion to the next level, about three years ago, I started scuba diving as a hobby, but it ended up changing my life because for the first time in my life, I was seeing the effects of climate change from a completely different lens, completely different perspective, one that I had never experienced before. Intellectually, I was aware that the coral reefs around the world were damaged or that there was a ton of plastic pollution in our oceans. But when I actually saw it with my own two eyes and saw the extent of that damage and saw the extent of that pollution, it actually fundamentally changed me as a person and made it to where, as opposed to engaging in a recreation or a hobby, it has now become almost like a passion project where every opportunity I get, I can get out there and I can really try to make a teeny, teeny dent by you know engaging in cleanup myself. 
but I would say that based on just my personal family history, our ethnicity and where we come from, as well as something that I experienced by accident in the course of a recreation, uh, a very, very committed um, passion and interest level was born. It's definitely important work. I know as a lover of the ocean myself and having grown up in Australia and understanding the impact of climate change on the Greater Barrier Reef, Hiba, I understand that this experience has led to advocacy work. You know, it has in my own very kind of small way. Uh, obviously, the most important thing that a person can do is try to live more sustainably and practice what they preach. And that's something that I try to do, um, you know, finding different ways to minimize my carbon footprint. And then about a year ago, I became an ambassador for a company called Four Ocean. So Four Ocean is a, a for-profit company um, that was founded in 2017. And the company's mission is to end the ocean plastic crisis. So basically what this company does, it's actually really cool, is they make bracelets and apparel and other merchandise, but they make it from recycled materials and other environmentally and socially responsible source materials. And then for every sale that they make, the proceeds are then invested back into the company for purposes of actually cleaning up the plastic from the ocean. And so just as an example, you could purchase a bracelet and then the proceeds from that will represent their team on the ground cleaning up approximately five pounds of plastic from the ocean. And so that is actually something that I'm very happy and excited to be involved with because in addition to what I do on a day-to-day -day basis, because my profession is not one that's directly related to the environment and related topics. Um, it's my small way of trying to do something in support of more sustainable practices. So you are an immigration nerd with a climate conscious. Uh, yeah, I think that that is the best way to describe me. Now for a conversation about a global issue that's rapidly accelerating, climate-driven migration. According to the Climate Migration Council, the worsening impacts of the climate emergency are affecting populations worldwide and increasingly shaping whether, where and how people move or do not move, depending on social, political, economic and environmental contexts. Joining us now from the 2023 United Nations Climate Change Conference in Dubai is Erin Sikorsky and from Mexico City, Dan Restrepo. Erin and Dan, welcome to the Immigration Nerds Podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Perfect. So Erin, I'd like to start with you. I know you and Dan have remarkable professional backgrounds and tremendous experience in and out of government. Can you start by explaining how the impact of the climate change on human mobility is multidirectional and why you believe it requires serious policy and legal adaptations? Yeah, thanks for having us. And as you said, I've been here at the climate negotiations in Dubai and climate's impact on migration has frankly been at the top of the agenda for a lot of conversations I've been in for the past few days. You know, we really see, I think, two main pathways for climate related migration, right? The first is when you have acute shocks like typhoons, floods, et cetera, that force people to move kind of immediately in response. But then you also have um, slow onset stressors, right, over time where you have degradation of farmland or maybe the salinization of fresh water basins, unlivable temperatures, right? And that can cause folks to move as well. 
um, you know, the issue that I look at, climate security and climate and conflict, uh, one of the other pathways we see is that when climate change forces people to leave their homes and move into perhaps areas that are already under conflict, right? So there's a lot of overlapping challenges here. And the reason we need new policy and legal approaches potentially is just the scale of the crisis and the challenge, right? The number of people we expect to be on the move. But also, I think the opportunity in that we know this is going to be a problem going forward. And so we can get ahead of it. Right. And by putting smart policies in place today, we can be better prepared for the future. So, Dan, I actually have a question for you. We know that people who are displaced from their land and homes are highly vulnerable to loss of their basic rights. The Climate Migration Council is committed to putting people at the center of climate action. Is the global south the most vulnerable here, in your opinion? Yes, is the short answer, but it's a, it's as in all things um, climate migration related, it's a little more complicated than that. Um, so climate vulnerability hits marginalized communities harder um, wherever those marginalized communities are. Um, we see that across the United States, um, across Europe, um, but on a global scale, you have more marginalized communities um, within the global south. Uh, and we're seeing that um, from small island nations that are particularly vulnerable, um, who have um, economic challenges to begin with, who are now in a race against time in terms of rising sea levels. Um, you see, as Aaron was pointing out, kind of those slow onset effects that are accelerating across the globe. We've seen this in the Americas. I spend, I'm in Mexico City today. I spend a lot of my time in and around countries in the Western Hemisphere where you see real changes that are displacing populations. In Mexico itself, water scarcity is becoming a real challenge in the country. And you're seeing increased internal displacement first from those affected by water scarcity here in Mexico. But that is likely to also spill over borders um, and not just the US-Mexico border. Um, one of the interesting things about climate migration and, and other forms of migration, displacement happens, um, we, we think about it as happening towards the global north, but it actually, most of it, again, in the Americas, takes place within the region. Um, you have a large displaced population in the Americas for a host of reasons, 80 some odd percent of whom stay somewhere else in Latin America and the Caribbean and don't necessarily cross towards the United States or elsewhere in the global north. But the short answer is climate migration is felt hardest by marginalized communities, and marginalized communities are more concentrated in the global south. So, Aaron, understanding kind of as both you and Dan have explained that there are different types of this migration or even displacement, when we talk about it when it comes to kind of this latter category, which is planned relocation, which essentially is the intentional efforts to move people permanently away from an environmental risk. How often does this mean moving across borders versus within the country itself? And how do you think countries are thinking about this movement from a humanitarian and a security perspective? It's a good question. And as Dan explained, you know, most climate migration that we expect to see will be within countries, right? People will move places that are closer to where they, they currently are. In terms of intentional efforts to move people permanently away, I think this is a place where we need to be careful in that we're honoring as much as possible the choices of the people themselves and centering their decision-making process. Because I think in an ideal world, we want to put as much investment in 
adaptation and resilience building as possible so people don't have to move necessarily, but that if they do need to move, if there is that kind of more permanent and planned conversation, that they're a part of that decision making and it's not imposed upon them. Right. And so I think if we're talking about the humanitarian perspective, that's incredibly important. From a security perspective, I think it's really important for states as they consider this to take into account the communities into which people are moving and making sure there are efforts to build trust relationships between the new communities coming in and the old ones that are there. And those considerations are considered from the beginning and planned for carefully. Having worked in the intelligence community for a long time where we dealt with a range of risks and threats that could be surprises or we didn't have good information on, this is an issue where we actually have pretty good understanding of what climate is going to do. So it's a problem we can get ahead of and set some rules of the road. And I think that's a very delicate balance that you've outlined, you know, obviously the individuals that are impacted who are part of this uh, climate-driven migration, as well as the communities or countries that they're going to end up in. I, I guess the understanding the goals of the council is having a supportive policy and legal framework in place, going to offer a positive outcome for both the migrants and the host communities, despite, you know, the hazardous origins of, of these individuals coming into communities. Exactly, exactly. And if I might add there for a second, um, just to underscore the host community point here and the agency of the individuals, both the individuals who are on the move and the individuals who are in these host communities. Migration, as we all know, and human mobility creates political consequences. And those political consequences can have far-reaching effects. Um, Erin knows that very well from her intelligence background. I've dealt with it from the National Security Council at the White House during President Obama's administration. And we need to center, we need to make sure both the migrants themselves or the folks who are facing displacement themselves are part of decision-making processes and that policy responses don't short shrift the communities that are taking these people in. And that's kind of the key to avoiding a lot of the turbulence, right, is having policies of integration, policies that quickly help facilitate the new arrivals to become kind of productive members of the community that they now find themselves in. That is good for the host community. It lowers social tensions. It lowers political tensions that um, may come from kind of mishandled migration, if you will. And we see lots of examples of mishandled migration around the world. And it's the agency of the people who are at the heart of these that I think is really important. But what about economic tensions? So let me let me kind of explain my question. If I look at this situation from the lens of an immigration lawyer, then my mind is automatically going to go to, well, what are the existing or potential immigration pathways or immigration benefits in place, right, that would afford a climate refugee some form of temporary or protected status in the event of some sort of catastrophe or disaster? When you're addressing this topic, particularly that of adjusting and assimilation and whatnot, is there almost like a resistance from an economic perspective? Because I would imagine that a host country is going to say, if we make this a bit more of a comfortable adjustment, it's going to encourage people to come to our country that maybe otherwise would not have come to our country or do we have the economic uh, resources to be able to support an influx of climate refugees? That trade-off doesn't need to happen. 
Um, and we actually have a number of examples. And again, I'm going to use an example from Latin America and Colombia's experience of absorbing nearly 3 million Venezuelans since 2015. In Colombia, kind of the initial wave of folks who were leaving Venezuela in 2015 left. Um, they were essentially, they were Colombians who had gone in the other direction for political reasons and insecurity reasons in the prior decades. Um, and so they were kind of absorbed back into society quite um, readily because they kind of had a social safety net to catch them. But it also led to Colombia adapting a series of policies that were very much about allowing the smooth social and particularly economic integration of arriving communities. Three million people into a country of 45 million people is a lot of people in a short period of time. But what we've seen since 2015, and we've seen it's beginning to be studied in a very systematic way, is that that decision to allow people to work legally quickly while providing social services, while providing access to education and healthcare and basic social services, has actually made these new arrivals fiscal contributors, right? They, they've essentially became taxpayers and they became part of an economic engine where Colombia did better as a result of this influx than it might otherwise have done. And so this, this notion of having kind of very intentional policies of integration has proven, and this is one of several cases, to be more effective than kind of the approaches of like segmenting off the new arrivals, kind of a camp-based approach to these sorts of things, and kind of maintaining an otherness to these new populations that hasn't had the same kind of smooth economic effects. And, and again, these are not perfectly smooth. There are adjustment periods, um, but this kind of core concept of integration and allowing people to become economic contributors to their new communities, for the most part, has proven to be quite effective. So Aaron, um, based on your experience, I know you're actually still in Dubai at COP. Based on your experience being at the conference, do you think that that proactive approach so that countries don't necessarily feel like there's some sort of like an economic consequence, does that seem to be resonating? I think there's growing resonance for that. I think it's still there's still a lot of work to be done. Frankly, um, I think especially in the the global north on on this approach. But I will say also, I think at the same time that we're doing you know that piece and thinking about integration, um, there's been a real push here at COP for increased climate finance across a range of different programs for adaptation and resilience in the most affected countries, so that as many people as possible will be able to stay in their communities, or if they're moving internally, right, within countries that say capital cities that are absorbing these migrants internally are better able to be prepared and take them on the, um, you know, the loss and damage fund, which is a new fund that was just approved this year for countries in the global north to pay money to the most vulnerable countries to build resilience to climate hazards. Money's going into that account. It's not nearly enough, but money's starting to go and flow. And I think, again, there's this recognition that this can help get ahead of some of this climate migration challenge. So I wanted to ask the both of you about some data, uh, if that's OK. I'll start with you, Dan. The Climate Migration Council points to a 2021 World Bank report that predicts that without adequate climate action and development support, by 2050, climate change could lead more than 216 million people to becoming internal migrants 
in Latin America, Eastern Europe, Central Asia, North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, East Asia, the Pacific. Can you help us appreciate what that might look like? Yeah, so it's going to look different in different places. And we know that because we're already seeing it, right? So in places like Latin America, in North Africa, and Sub-Saharan Africa, and South and East Asia, you're going to see an intensification of urbanization. Um, you're going to see more and more folks, as Aaron just noted, kind of moving to capital cities. We've already seen this in Latin America in the last five years, the 20 largest cities in the region. Their populations have grown by 20%. And that has its own climate consequences um, and the vulnerabilities that it creates in these new populations in urbanized settings. Across like small island countries, you're going to see um, mass dislocation across national borders. Because these folks, there's there's nowhere to go within the country itself. There's just so much higher ground, literally. And you're going to see people moving across borders. You're also going to see that, and we've actually seen this another example, and I keep belaboring examples in the Western Hemisphere, my apologies, um, in the Western Highlands of Guatemala. So historically, um, this is an area of subsistence farming. And when people could no longer subsist based on the farming, they would move to intermediate or capital cities as their kind of first dislocation. And then often would get dislocated again, um, as is the pattern in migration, um, across a national border, largely by insecurity or conflict in those urban settings. What we've seen in the last few years as the Western Highlands have been hit by a very severe and prolonged drought is direct cross-border displacement. So we've seen an increasing number of people from the Western Highlands of Guatemala no longer going to Guatemala City as their first place of refuge, but rather heading north um, and heading towards the United States. And you're finding increased numbers of folks from the Western Highlands encountered at the US-Mexico border. Um, so that's an, another example of kind of how we're going to see this play out. Um, so in different settings, you're going to have kind of different initial dislocations, which again, and I think this is important to underscore, themselves have climate consequences, particularly as urbanization accelerates across much of the global south. So Dan, I, I guess in light of that example, as well as kind of the data that we just covered, is targeting or trying to prevent or limit displacement within the community itself a way to stop these cities being departure cities or transition cities becoming a destination, being able to remain and battle against climate breakdown in the community itself? So I think this is a question, and, and Aaron was talking about this, and I think this is the growing focus at this year's COP and elsewhere in the kind of climate migration community and in the migration community writ large of this notion that we need to be more focused in terms of migration management on avoiding the first step rather than trying to prevent the last step of migration. Too much of kind of national policies in the global north has spent too much time trying to prevent the last step of people's migration from the global south to the global north. And you have a growing recognition that it is much more effective it is much more humane to address the circumstances that lead to people to dislocate in the first place. And if you can make communities more resilient, if you can help adaptation, more people can do what everyone wants to do, which is kind of live out their dreams where they are, right? Like a lot of this dislocation um, and migration, and we're using those words interchangeably because this is kind of a jargony space. There's this false premise that everybody wants to 
to move. Everybody, like, there's this kind of desire to move. I think the desire is just the opposite. The desire is people want to be able to live where they are. And I think there's a growing recognition amongst policymakers that we need to invest more at that end of the equation than at the end of the equation of trying to put up walls or barriers or other means of preventing the end of people's migratory baths. Dan's absolutely right. And I think that's a place that's been overlooked in the conversation. But also, as Dan mentioned, the reality is there are some places where adaptation and resilience won't solve the problem, right? The Pacific Islands, I think, are one. And where we see the issues are different in different geographies, the precedents that we're setting in terms of how we approach the migrants from the Pacific Islands in particular, I think, will ripple across a lot of other geographies as well. Because the Pacific Islands may be at the forefront given sea level rise, but there are other parts of the world that will truly become unlivable due to temperature rise potentially and other issues. And so um, getting it right with the Pacific Islands and how we approach that is really important because that will shape, I think, a lot of the conversation for those that really do have to move going forward. Erin, it also it makes it quite clear that there is not a one-size-fit-all solution to the challenges, just because it is so personal to location, to the geography, to the economic situation or climate of the individual communities. If we look at the goals of the Climate Migration Council, what principles guide the approach that you consider when you make recommendations for these individual communities going forward? Yeah, I think there's really three three principles. And I mean, we've touched on them throughout the conversation. But the first is, you know, whenever possible to prevent or limit that displacement associated with climate hazards, as, as Dan laid out very eloquently. The second is to make sure we're protecting the rights of affected communities and people on the move. And then that we're also third, enabling safe, regular and orderly migration pathways that promote human dignity and climate justice. So Again, as we've been saying, really centering the migrants in this conversation, making sure that, again, I think about this a lot coming from the climate and national security community, that we're not painting migrants themselves as the security threat in this conversation, right? Um, but it's often the reactions to the, the migrants um, that, that are the security threat. And, and there's so much work we can do to um, really get ahead of that. And so from your position at the UN's Climate Change Conference, do you feel that talking about these principles at this level will have the impact that the Climate Migration Council is looking for? I certainly hope so. I think we're starting the conversation, right? Um, I think, like I said, there's a lot more work to be done. But to the extent to which migration is being considered in many more of, of the conversations, whether it's around the global stock take or around the adaptation fund conversation that's happening right now and the loss and damage conversation, it's really well integrated into, into the talks here. And I'm hopeful that it will continue to be part of the decision-making process. So I wanted to get your thoughts on those locations that have multiple, multi-layered problems. Um, and I'll give you a specific example. So Part of the reason why this topic is so important to me is because I am of uh, Pakistani descent. Both of my parents are from Pakistan. And here's what I know about that particular country. It has well over 7,000 glaciers, more than any other country in the world outside of the polar regions, and they're melting. So that's one thing. 
There are specific regions in parts of the country that, as a result of increase in temperature, are already almost completely unlivable and are on the list of cities that will one day be completely uninhabitable as a result of the heat. Third, the coastal region is completely sea level and the storms in the region are getting stronger, fiercer and more dangerous. And then finally, uh, I think it was maybe two years ago, there was catastrophic rainfall that wiped out a third of the country. But what people also don't realize is that Pakistan is the fifth most populated country in the world. So we're talking about wiping out a third of the fifth most populated country that is surrounded by other populated countries with their own problems, right? And so my question is, what is the conversation like as it pertains to those regions that are facing multiple problems and seem, at least to me in my capacity as a layperson, very, very restricted from some of the solutions or possible solutions that the two of you have mentioned. So so let me take a, the first crack at this. Um, and I think what you just described, um, you actually can describe a similar set of challenges in a multitude of places. Um, not to dis, not not to diminish no, of course, the challenge of course, that is yeah. Pakistan because it is a it is one of the kind of exemplars of the interaction of multiple factors, um, climate and otherwise, um, that are deeply affecting vulnerable populations. And there is this inherent in the migration conversation. There is a desire for the solution. And one of the things that is kind of a fundamental importance in the migration conversation is recognizing that there is no thought solution. This is a multivariable equation um, yeah. that requires multivariable responses that aren't going to solve all of what you just described, because some of that, unfortunately, has gotten to a point of being unsolvable. And then you have to deal with the consequences of that and managing what is going to be the inevitable movement of people. Right. Because yeah. one of the and that's why at the Climate Migration Council, that's that's kind of the piece of this that we're focused on. We're focused on right, there's the 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 COP twenty eight is a conversation of the climate question writ large. Um, there's a bunch of other intersecting conversations here, but in terms of the climate migration piece, it's the okay, so these factors that you just described are going to lead to human displacement. How can we manage that human displacement? in a way that preserves the dignity of those who must move, that maintains as much order as can be maintained because of the kind of, if both it's, it's good to maintain order, but also the kind of negative effects of not maintaining order in the movement of people um, that we've seen in the politics, particularly in the global north, but it also affects the politics of the global south. Um, and so how do you go about managing that piece and raising consciousness and to Aaron's point earlier, but some of the work that's being done at this COP is how do we finally start putting dollars against the parts that you actually can affect from a resilience and adaptation perspective? Um, so multiple responses to a multiple challenge set. We at the Climate Migration Council very much focused on how do we lessen the negative effects of forced displacement and how do we protect the people who are inevitably on the move 
One of the the principles of the council is this human-centered approach. And part of the way you get at a human-centered approach is you talk to people on the ground who are experiencing these effects and, and learn from them. And if I can share a quick anecdote from here at COP, I was really excited to meet up with a scholar from Pakistan, a woman who's written for us at the Center for Climate and Security a few times. And she's been doing field research in the wake of the floods that you mentioned that happened there last year. And she's talking to women about why didn't they leave when the floodwaters started to to rise and, and the government was warning them to leave. And the women said, we couldn't leave our animals, right? We had nowhere to take our animals. We couldn't get them out of the community. We wanted to stay with them. And so they, they stayed until it was well past time to go. And just that knowledge of like, oh, it's not just the people we need to move, but it's also their resources. And we need to have infrastructure in place to do that. You only learn that when you talk to the communities and hear what their needs are. And so I think that's really important as well in in these conversations. You know, so I guess finally, from the legal perspective, there is no specific binding international convention addressing human mobility in the context of climate change. So I pose this question to both Aaron and Dan. What does the Climate Migration Council look to for guidance when it comes to legal frameworks? You're right. There's no globally binding set of agreements on this issue. So you kind of have to go from the general to the specific, right? So kind of international human rights law is kind of at the center of of how we approach this because it's a human-centric approach, as Aaron has pointed out. And then kind of looking, there are, you know, there are guiding principles from the kind of late 1990s on internal displacement. Um, There's a framework from the teens on disaster risk reduction. There's the Global Compact for Safe, Orderly, and Regular Migration that was adopted in 2018 that is kind of the broadest statement, current kind of global statement on migration management. Um, And then you go to the kind of regional, um, national, and local one of the, this has to permeate all the way down because the realities of displacement um, driven by climate are happening not just across, actually not even primarily across international borders yet, um, but much more an internal displacement. Um, so national laws matter here tremendously um, and national policies matter as well. It's one of the reasons that the Climate Migration Council, we focused on gathering people from all over the world and policymakers and policy leaders from throughout the global north and the global south to make sure that we have voices that are being heard and that are reflective of perspectives of the countries um, that are feeling this the most today. I think that variation or that diversity is really a key part of the dialogue. Uh, One of the statistics, or I guess the figures that has stood out to me a lot in understanding the question of where can humans live is the idea of the human climate niche. So it's understood as the part of the globe that is most suited for human life. And so a lot of our examples have talked about, you know, the global south, but the global north isn't immune from the global migration and the impacts of climate on their individual populations. I think the statistics said in 2003, climate change has already put approximately one-tenth of the global population outside of this niche. And by 2100, current emission scenarios show that that could go to one-third of the global population. And so you finding when you are having these dialogues and you're inviting people to come into the conversation that you do have that eager participation from individual communities, from countries, and then both the global north and the global south. Yeah, absolutely. I think these challenges, they're perhaps most acute in the global south at the moment, but they're being felt elsewhere as well. And 
this question of how to manage movement is at the forefront of a lot of different conversations on climate change. Well, I think that this is an important discussion for all of us, clearly one that is personal to Hibbert. And thank you so much for joining us for this conversation, but also to myself and, and to our listeners as climate change becomes an increasingly important driver of migration and displacement across the world. Dan Restrepo and Aaron Sikorsky with the Climate Migration Council. Thank you so much for joining us on the Immigration Nerds podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having us. This was great. And to all you nerds out there listening, thank you. As ever, you can track everything going on at Ericsson Immigration Group at our website, eiglaw.com. And remember, if you believe immigration makes us all better, then this is the podcast for you. Subscribe and share and meet us right back here for another new episode of Immigration Nerds.